HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And you know, most of us, when we're cooking, don't realize that we take a journey across the world and around the world every time we reach into our spice cabinet, evoking flavors of Middle Eastern cuisines or Chinese cuisines or, or Southern uh, Mexican cuisines. And this use of spices really, if you look into it, is very, very important in the history of our culture, of cultures around the world, and certainly in the culinary globalization of cultures. And here today to talk with me, actually he's not here, he's in Texas, but we've got him on the line, is someone who's done a lot of work on the history of spices and has even taken travels to go and uncover a lot of what's going on in or what went on in the world of of spice trading and that is Gary Paul Nabin and Gary is actually an ethnobotanist and and food anthropologist and uh, when I first picked up this book, I was a little surprised because I know him from his work on on saving seeds and apples and and heritage uh, fruits and vegetables. This is a departure, not a departure work, an extension work, I would say. But what a wonderful trip it was to read this book. I felt like I was traveling along with him. Gary, welcome. It's so great to be with you, Linda. Thank you. Uh, you know this, and I, and I say that with this book. The book is called Cumin Ca- Camels and Caravans, A Spice Odyssey. And, you know, as I was reading it, I couldn't help but kind of relate it to Paul Coelho's The Alchemist. It just took me out there on the desert, and I was, uh, and I was looking at camels, and I was, I was feeling the, you know, the, the communal um, tribesmen talking. Not only did you, as I said in the beginning, research 
do a lot of historical research on spices, you actually went and traveled those routes, the four different major routes, correct? That's right. Over a matter of eight years, I had the blessing and opportunity to travel to 14 different countries on five continents looking at uh, spice trade routes and interviewing spice traders, some of whom had inherited that profession uh, from five to fit, 10 to 15 generations of their own family before them. Well, in fact, um, you even said that your family, you could trace your family back to have been, having been spice traders. That's right. My grandfathers who came to this country from Lebanon and Syria uh, were spice peddlers and fruit peddlers, and um, my family has had uh, spice trade businesses in Lebanon, Syria, Oman, and Yemen over millennia that we can trace. Uh, the Arabs are as good at genealogy records as uh, the Mormons are, so <laughs> I've been fortunate to pick up some of that. Well, what I found um, so interesting, I mean, I guess the, the overlying... Um, topic or under underlying overlying the the the, the main thrust of of your work to me speaks to how we maybe really don't understand culinary globalization and how early it all began. I mean, so many historians claim that it began, of course, with Columbus, right? You know, bringing all the spices back, or the or the um, from the uh, the spice routes and the Silk Roads. Um, but you talk more, and you know, and, and of course, in the Middle East, all we hear about is is the conflict of late. And you talk about how Arabs and Jews really spent much of their history collaborating. And what did they collaborate in? But in the spice trade, so they knew so much about so many cultures. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, you're dead on target in getting right down to the intent of this book, Linda. I. Uh, Carlo Petrini, the founder of Slow Food, has spoken about virtuous globalization, that we need not think about globalization as only one option in the way we exchange materials and ideas between cultures. And in fact, um, my intent of this book was to show that throughout most of history, there was an ethics and morality about trade that um, gradually um, spread from uh, the far reaches of Western Europe to the coast of China and down into Africa and was shared among many spice traders and exemplified virtuous globalization. And much of this emerged out of moral and, pre moral and ethical precepts of Jews, uh, Arabs, and other Semitic peoples uh, who first lived in deserts where they had to have exchanges with uh, people from other valleys and watersheds um, of foodstuffs to survive because desert rainfall, of course, is so unpredictable that um, a kind of ethical exchange emerged. And it's only been since the last 400 years that that began to erode in terms of the ethical um, uh, veracity shared by people that has led to the horrors of globalization that we see today. All right. Well, 
going back to that region, um, it, as I said, you, you are also a desert ecologist, and you live in the desert now in America, right? <laughs> um, so this was not you for you going back to this area <clears throat> um, and following these routes. Now you followed four major routes: the Spice Route, the Silk Road, the Frankincense Route, and the Camino Real. Uh, that's right. And the Spice Trail across uh, northern Africa is, like the Silk Road, is really multiple routes. Actually, all of them uh, can be considered multiple routes. Uh, the Silk Road, we can also talk about the maritime Silk Road between the Middle East and China, as well as the overland route through, route through Central, America, uh, Central Asia. Oh, so that encompasses a lot, a lot more stuff. Well, for the sake of, of the early spices that we read about in early texts and certainly in, in you know, uh, old stories from the Bible and um, about frankincense, frankincense being one of the earliest. Uh, tell us what the, the frankincense route, why this became such an important route, because my question initially was, well, what grows in the desert? And frankincense is certainly That's right. One of them. So <laughs> deserts have very low productivity of course, because of low rainfall, but they also have uh, plants whose fragrances and flavors have been intensified by the heat, drought, and very mineralized soils uh, of the desert. So ironically, it's low productivity but high potency, uh, not only of culinary spices, but medicinal plants, uh, spiritual incenses, and even hallucinogens, and yet a lot of these have very restricted distributions, as frankincense and myrrh do. There's different kinds of frankincense and myrrh, but each of them has a peculiar potency that's associated with one particular landscape. So something called transit trade began between these areas as nomads would harvest one of these very, very potent herbs or, or fruits or gums like frankincense and trade it to agricultural peoples around desert oases who, of course, could grow staple crops with some reliability and yield stability. So I was blessed to be able to go to the natal grounds of frankincense trade on the Oman-Yemen border and uh, see the incredible ethics that Semitic peoples had developed to protect these populations from over-exploitation. And, I mean, we're talking about 3,500 years of the use of a plant population without over-exploiting it. Hmm. And these are the gnarly-looking trees that sit all alone. <laughs> That's right. I, I, I mean, it's, it reminds me when you mentioned that uh, you and I are both in love with heirloom apples that, that my uh, hard cider-making friends always Say the best flavors and fragrances come from the gnarliest apples <laughs> right. that are so ugly that you wouldn't want to put them on the dessert plate, but they're terrific for cider. And the same thing is true with these trees. They look tortured, and the frankincense uh, resins themselves are, are called tears. They're, they're shaped like tears. They look like tears, and it's as if the tree has been wounded by the wind or the the knife of a harvester, and that they're um, they're crying out to the heavens to uh, to uh, be released from this p- 
pain of living through all this drought and heat. Hmm. And so, um, ironically, that became known as the food of the gods. The incense was not only used uh, in spiritual ceremonies, but in uh, erotic uh, ceremonies uh, uh, among couples and as an additive to foods and beverages. And at one time, frankincense was the most highest valued commodity in the world in trade. We're talking very expensive, correct? That's right. I mean, uh, and it increased a thousandfold in costs as it went from the uh, Nedge Highlands of Oman and Yemen uh, up to Rome and Athens, where at one time Julius Caesar worried that the obsession with um, incenses and culinary spices was actually bankrupting the Roman Empire by creating an imbalance in the balance of trade between the outliers and the core of the empire. Hmm. Well, these these uh, Semitic peoples who who traded in these spices and and gathered the, you know the time labor to gather the frankincense in particular, the sticky resin that just oozes once in a while when they what they you said graze it with their knife. But there were other spices too. I mean, that the, um, what I my question is sort of like why did so, why did some of them uh, travel uh, and some didn't, or or what caused you know what made some of them travel more readily? Well, this is my hypothesis that underlies the whole book that um, desert peoples would likely be impoverished and and go extinct. In fact, many have because of the paucity of natural resources they have available to them. Unless they elevate, magnify, and mythologize their uh, products beyond their caloric value. In other words, um, why would we trade something of a thousand calories that weighs virtually nothing? Um, Why would we trade it to people across a few thousand miles? It's it's not for the caloric, nutritional, or even the medicinal value of these plants alone. It's that desert people, by uh, propensity and inclination, had to be great storytellers. They lived in small groups. They gathered with other people only a few times a year after traveling long distances across barren spaces. And so it was not just the chemical potency of these culinary spices and medicinal herbs and incenses that propelled them into globalized trade, but the extraordinary storytelling abilities of these spice traders. And I would say that our best chefs today um, uh, are storytellers and and, uh, myth shapers, not just great technicians of food preparation. And I'm thinking of Rick Bayless and Mario Batali and and uh, my friend, uh, the James Beard Award-winning uh, poet chef, Chris Bianco. These people um, create in our imaginations a space for these flavors and fragrances that last with us. And desert peoples, almost by necessity, had to cultivate that combination of telling people about the chemical potency of the spices and herbs that they were carrying, but also 
uh, create memorable and lasting stories about them. So Herodotus in, in Greece thought that the frankincense uh, grounds were protected by flying snakes who would attack anyone who came into the grounds without permission. So it's a, it's a great combination of, of ecology and mythology that, that uh, propelled these desert spices into what later became globalized trade and included tropical and temperate uh, plants as well. Right. That's a, and, and the interesting thing is about the storytelling. I, I, there you go. You know, take television away and look what happens <laughs> in the middle of the <laughs> desert. That's right. <laughs> right. But um, I found it very interesting in how you describe that, that these people, um, the Semitic tribes who would from very different regions, uh, knew they also were multicultural and in multilingual i mean they knew other languages they they knew all the different names that someone would call let's say um cumin by by whatever names or or cinnamon by different names um and i would imagine the uses as well that's right so part of what facilitated globalization was the way that spice traders were trained in sort of this ethical professional standard that they had to go back to each of the gathering grounds themselves, if at all possible, and learn the proper way of harvesting and drying and and uh, storing and protecting um, potent spices from the elements. So one elegant man in his 70s that I met in Sultan Ishkashim in Afghanistan uh, my staff was at one point wondering whether I was trying to travel to all the axes of evil in a matter of two years because I kept on going to places like Afghanistan and the Yemen border. Mm. But this this man had been uh, apprenticed by his grandfather uh, in India and, and the uh, Himalayas uh, at each place where his family uh, sourced spices that they brokered on the Silk Road. And so it was a remarkable thing that when I asked him, looking at a jar of spices, what, what its name was, he said, well, in, in what language? Uh, I know the name of this spice in uh, eight to 12 different languages because I deal with people of so many different ethnicities. So these people were the original polyglots, the, the cultural creatives that bridge the knowledge between between and among cultures. Hmm, interesting. Oh, let's talk about the um, the foods that... Uh, talk about what I want to get to, I guess, is culinary imperialism. Like, these, these spices have traveled uh, across oceans and across deserts, and, and they are associated, most often, with very exotic dishes. Uh, what... Is there some... Do you see some negative effect on us as, as how this has affected us in this present-day society? Well, absolutely. This is not uh, glorifying or romanticizing even the spice trade done by Semitic peoples. And again, I want to remind your listeners that we sort of use the term anti-Semitism as if it's um, uh, a term that only refers to uh, the disparagement of Jewish peoples, but through most of history, we had uh, uh, 
Jewish Arabs and Arabized Jews and and Phoenicians and and uh, Menaeans and and uh, Nabataeans who all integrated these spice routes and developed them into what we knew by the time uh, Columbus and Magellan uh, made the, the long distance trips uh, by sea. But what I what I want to get at is that that there was certainly a redistribution of wealth that happened, uh, particularly with the uh, uh, Islamic empire first and then the Western European uh, empires, where um, if a spice was costing a thousand times what the staples of uh, wheat or barley or rice uh, cost, that money was being spread out along a supply chain, and it was also coming back to emperors and um, used by wealthy merchants to tithe um, the people who were allied with them in, in, in power. So, um, you know, by, by the time um, of the 10th or 12th century in Europe, um, uh, the Radonite uh, uh, Jews um, held incredible power, uh, greater than the power that kings and popes had. So there was kind of a, a uh, culinary imperialism in what became in vogue on the, the uh, tables at feasts, but there was also an economic imperialism that intensified as time uh, went on. Mm. Well, spices sh- certainly um, throughout different periods of time have been uh, related to those of means. You know, wealthy people were the only ones who could afford these these things. Whether it was the um, the Renaissance or you know the uh, going back in Roman times and Greek times, as you mentioned earlier. So, yeah, well, well, that's an interesting thing that I was surprised. I, I thought they would be only held by the elite, but Julius Caesar, in particular, said these are these are so much in demand and desired by the middle class or low, lower class as a as a status symbol and a relief from the monotony of their lives. That that's what concerned him, and I think we can say that's what concerns us today when. We hear uh, uh, people in developing countries uh, aspiring to the kind of wealth and consumptive excesses that Americans and Western Europeans take for granted, and we know that uh, we're living at 50 times our carrying capacity uh, in, in the United States and um, acquiring most of the, the uh, goods for consumption and, and, ener- right. and using an enormous portion of the world's energy to do that, and that people in Chinese, in, I mean, the Chinese uh, are aspiring to do the same. So the the elite sets up expectations for other people, and that's when we begin to see the horrific conflicts that we've seen in all parts of the world over centuries. Right, right. Well, um, what I did not mention at the top of the show is that uh, Gary is the W.K. Kellogg Endowed Chair for Sustainable Food Systems, Professor of, professor of Sustainable Food Systems, um, the Endowed Chair by Kellogg, um, at the University of Arizona. And this brings me to what you had just said, you know, teaching sustainable food systems. 
And looking at this, at as you said, Carla Petrini talking about virtuous um, globalization, and and that, what do you feel in looking at the past and how this 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 globalization occurred with these spice traders? Does it suggest to you anything that we could uh, a multicultural globalized society might be achieved in the future some way we could reach this in the future through their practices well yes i i mean i i meditate deeply on this every day because of course as you said in your introduction most of my work has been with uh, helping revive and restore viability to local food systems so why did i do this eight-year tangent on globalization i i think we have to learn uh, the costs of our own that are embedded in our own history uh, to get right about the balance between global and local. And, and we will all be involved in both, but we need to shift the balance towards food justice for all. So I think it, the tragedy that I see and that you know well is that farm workers and food service workers are the professions most likely to have to ask for food relief in this country. Mm -hmm. The people who bring us our daily bread are the ones most marginalized by how our current industrial food system works. And so we need to go deep into history and deep into what other societies have done to come up with uh, corrective actions that can stay viable not just over a year or two or under a small group of people who are willing to buy fair trade, but a restructuring of our whole um, food supply chains. I'm not a Marxist, but I think we need to listen to the powerful things that Karl Marx said about how so much of our um, uh, trade and commerce has really gone wrong and created uh, well-being only for that 1%. And, and so I don't want to die in a world where the disparities have doubled or quadrupled over my lifetime. I think we need to correct that. All right. Well, you have um, you said that um, spices are not neutral, that they are imbued, and I'm putting words into what you said, but, um, but for the sake of, of, of a discussion, that spices are imbued politically, economically, and religiously with, with different meanings, with different um, uh, effects that have brought them to us after 3,500 years of, of being traded. Spices are, are still they're in these lands and coming from places that, um, that have such history. And it foreshadows, as we talked about, the process of globalization, uh, what uh, what do we what do we think of? I mean, I'm I'm just trying to think about the um, globalization of of foods and trying to live in a sustainable, as you just talked about, in the sustainable world of farming, uh, it, a way to to make sure that um, like with your work in seed, in seed saving, that this is something that we can going forward we can be more thoughtful, more mindful in, in our consumption? I, Linda, you've just uh, summarized my uh, values and aspirations for all of us um, 
so well. I wish you'd written the jacket cover for this book. That was a really succinct summary of the um, issues and, and values embedded in this book. And, you know, I'm turning my own efforts now to things like free access public seed libraries. I'm hosting the first international forum on uh, free access seed libraries in Tucson, May 3rd to 6th. And uh, it's, it's this growing movement to make sure that uh, the choices that people have um, in uh, selecting seeds for their own gardens, particularly in this time of rapid climate change, aren't dominated by a few multinational seed companies that now own most of the uh, uh, wealth that uh, controls transactions in seed trade. Mm -hmm. um, so we now have 440 seed libraries around the world that have emerged just over the last decade. Um, the seed uh, heirloom seed movement that I've been involved with for uh, 33 years uh, is celebrating its third of a century uh, uh, anniversary of the first forum on seed bank serving people. And, and over that time, we've um, had a five-fold increase in the varietal diversity of food plants and animal varieties uh, that we that Americans and Canadians have access to. Wow. So there's some very good things happen to reverse the destructive and um, uh, processes that have diminished people's options. And I think seed libraries is a good example of of sort of a grassroots democratic action that's really gotten a foothold in our communities. Yeah. Well, uh, I see that we are uh, running out of time, and I, and I could go on talking about this for, for a long time. <laughs> and I am so glad that you, that you wrote this book and that, you, and that you reported on all your travels over the years because um, it just it adds a, a deeper, different voice to the whole talk of um, sustainable living and, and farming. And if we can look at what was done 3,500 years ago and, and apply that to our lives today, I think maybe there's hope. <laughs> so Gary Nabin, thank you very much. Gary Nabin and the author, the name of the book is Cumin Camels and Caravans, A Spice Odyssey. Thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.